The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit, its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our New Testament reading for today is James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the, pur the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope. It's good to be with you this morning, and it's, it's good to see new faces as, as well. Like Michael said, in an Iowa city, as, as August uh, draws near, now August is upon us. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to see new faces, so that's exciting. And if you get a chance, I would love to connect with you after the service. I'm, I'm fairly new, too. I, I, I came here in, in April. Um, so, so take heart. You're just a little newer um, than me. But as a congregation, we come together, and we come together around the Word of God. As, as we've said each week, it's, it's the Word of God that, that calls us. It's the Word of God that collects us. It's the Word of God that creates us as a church. And it's the Word of God that creates us as a church, that makes us new, um, as the song sang. So before we come and listen to the Word of God, let us come together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, for you have gathered us, and you have gathered us with your word, the word that proclaims the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, and applies that word to our spirits, uniting us with you and uniting us with one another. And towards that end, Father God, we pray that you would bless the words that follow, that they would be true to your intentions of this passage, and that you would minister Christ Jesus yourself, or his self, uh, through them. And we ask this, Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the philosopher Charles Taylor identifies an interesting problem in the modern West. He says that as a culture, we find it harder and harder to believe that we're a part of a, of a bigger story, um, that we're a part of a narrative with, with meaning that goes beyond our everyday existence. And he says there's a number of reasons why this is the case, but one of the key reasons 
why we find it harder and harder to believe in a bigger story is the reality of, of death. And in particular, this would be death conceived as non-existence, death as simply ceasing to be, death as the full and complete negation of who you are in everything you've ever done. The hard part here is seeing this, death so conceived as our ending. Because if we're a part of a great story, we have to have a great ending. And if we think about the great endings of the stories that we love, those endings surprise us. Those endings complete everything that's gone before. Those endings make sense of the narrative to that point, and they cast light on everything. Think about some of the the most dearly loved stories of the past few decades. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings story, it, it just has to be that Gollum steals the ring and he falls into, unwittingly, the fires of, of Mount Doom. It just has to be that the pool of evil destroys itself in the end. That the many acts of mercy shown to Gollum actually serve to destroy the ring. Or, if you're familiar with the Harry Potter series, it has to be that, that Harry himself is that last horcrux to be destroyed. That alone can explain that lifelong tie he has to Voldemort and and can give shape to the sacrificial service to the lengths he's willing to go to to save the wizarding world and be brought back to life. These are great endings to those stories. But what if our ending is is death? What if we end with non-existence, with ceasing to be, with negation. What light can that cast on who we are? How can that make sense of our personal histories? If that's the case, there can be no enduring story. There can be no enduring meaning. Because think about it. If death is our ultimate horizon, the future is always, always bleak. Hope cannot last. Hope cannot endure. Hope really can't even get off the ground. Because if that's the case, the worst is always yet to come. But things don't have to be so bleak. In fact, James here shows us another way, a different way. He calls attention to the importance of hope in the human life, And he tells us to the degree that we stumble in our lives, we have either lost or we have misplaced our hope. And so James presents us, James gives us a hope that makes sense of our whole story and enables us to find our proper place within it. In a sense, what James does here is he teaches us how to hope. And and we might look at this passage in light of, of three steps Seeing hope, seeking hope, and speaking hope. So look with me first at James 5, 7. This is how James begins the passage. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early 
in the late rains. So first we have to see hope. We have to know what it is we're hoping for. We have to know what it is that's supposed to make sense of our lives. We have to know what it is that's supposed to cast light on our personal histories. And James tells us that it's not death. Rather, it's the coming, the returning of our Lord Jesus Christ. Somehow this future event as an object of hope is able to orient all that we believe, all that we say, all that we do. And it's important here that as James has done throughout the letter, he again appeals to agricultural imagery. He again and again uses agricultural imagery to denote the dynamics of the Christian life. It's showing us that our good ending is the fruition, is the maturation of all that has come before, like the steady growth of a plant. But this doesn't mean it's not surprising. Again, perhaps the biggest image hovering behind all that James writes is Psalm 1, and we've talked about that again and again. And think about a tree. In particular, think about an acorn. If you had never seen an oak tree, could you ever imagine that this small, insignificant seed could one day become an acorn? Yet, this process is completely natural. It's built into the very pattern of creation, that this small, insignificant seed that you can crush beneath your feet will one day become one of the most majestic things in all of nature. And this is a great story. This is a story with a beautiful and an unexpected ending. Who would have thought that an acorn can become an oak? Yet this very story is told by God every single day in a million different ways. There's a a fantastic, uh, wonderful theologian from the 7th century. His name is Maximus, the the confessor. And um, reflecting on Paul, he, he explains the following. He says, When the apostle says that all will be made new, he does not mean that all things have become something else. Think about with respect to the oak tree. The oak tree has become new, but it has not become something else. Its its newness is the full flourishing of what it is. Its newness is the consummation of all that has come before. It's finally reached its, its telos, what God has intended it to be. And this is a fitting ending. And again, if we look at the acorn, it's an unexpected ending. And it helps us make sense of everything that comes before. That is, you you can really only understand the acorn in light of of the oak tree. Because if you understand it in light of the oak tree and you, you start to look at the acorn, you realize how every single feature of the acorn is preparing it for the transformation into the oak tree. Only by understanding where it will be can you, can you understand where it is now. And this is the very kind of imagery that James appeals to throughout his letter and here as well. This is the kind of imagery by which we as humans are meant to understand ourselves. 
When we think of Christ's return, James is telling us that somehow we will be made new in this very same sense, in light of this agricultural, in light of this farming imagery. As as one commentator writes about this passage with with special appeal uh, to James' use of the notion of the farmer, uh, the commentator writes the following. The farmer sets out to obey the laws of God as they are built into the way things work. He plants his seed at the appointed time in the appointed conditions, and having done so, he waits, for there is no other way to harvest time. So when we think of any plant, it can be the oak tree, it can be the cornstalk, it needs certain things to come to fruition, things that the farmer gives to it. It needs soil, it needs water, it needs sun, it needs tilling and tending. And without these things, there is no oak. Without these things, there is no cornstalk. So what about us? Well, in a similar way, James is telling us that without the second coming of Christ, without Christ's return, somehow we will not reach our full flourishing. We will not reach our fruition, our consummation. We will not become what God ultimately intends human beings to become. Without the second coming of Christ, we will, in a sense, stay as acorns. And just as an acorn needs water, sun, and soil, somehow we need Christ's return. This is the surprising ending that makes sense of everything that comes before. This is how we become not something else, but something new how we become all that God intends for us to be. But then the question arises, why and how does this happen through Christ's return? Well, that brings us to the next point, seeking hope. Look with me at James 5, 8 through 11, the next part of the passage. James writes the following, You also be patient, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful." None of us want death. And thankfully, this is not the end that James presents us with. Death cannot fulfill our stories. In fact, it undoes and destroys our stories. But not so the return of Jesus Christ. It tells a different story. More specifically, it completes a different story. Yet, interestingly, James presents the return of Christ through an image that might not strike us as initially appealing. He presents Christ as judge. As Christ, uh, he presents Christ as the judge that's standing at the door. James tells us that when Christ returns, he returns as a judge, one who judges the entire world, one who judges me, one who judges you, one who judges the very entirety of our lives. 
A few years ago, I think God as judge was a rather unpopular religious concept. It was a bit taboo. And, and rather, what was more palatable was this notion of God as, as forgiver and perhaps a, a sort of vague notion of religious forgiveness. However, I, I wonder if that's still the case. Today, rhetoric goes back and forth across political and ideological divides, and it does so with a harshness and a callousness that continually calls for persons to come under judgment to be removed from their professional positions, to be ostracized, to be rejected, to be shunned, to ruin them and their reputations forever with absolutely no inkling of forgiveness. I think in our modern cultural moment, we are all judges now, and perhaps God as judge is not quite the offensive concept as it was before. But to be sure, we have taken judgment in a dangerous direction, but I think as a culture, we have remembered that injustice demands judgment, which is a very important truth. However, when we come to Christ's return, we have to look at judgment in a different way. We are the ones who find ourselves under the lens of judgment, under the lens of Christ, and we realize just how low our own standards are of justice are. Christ tells us that any injustice against God and neighbor leaves us guilty before Christ, who is both God and neighbor. Our problem with our modern conception of justice is that it's much too low, much too soft. It's a justice that only condemns the other, and it leaves us unscathed. It leaves us okay. It leaves us exonerated. But not so the justice of Christ. And this is a very fearful realization. Uh, Take, for example, the character of Hazel Motes in Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood. And Hazel Motes rejects Jesus for just this reason. Growing up, Hazel wanted to be a preacher and he waits regularly for the chance for something uh, to, sorry, to be invited to do something immoral so that he can condemn the other and show himself the more righteous person. However, when this opportunity finally comes to him, um, when he's undergoing military service, his, his condemnation falls flat and it, the, his, his faith itself starts to erode. He realizes this approach just can't work in light of who Christ actually is. He comes to see that if Jesus is real, there can be no ultimate separation between us and them, between the righteous and the unrighteous. If Jesus is real, then we all fall short. If Jesus is real, we are all guilty. And so in a later scene, Hazel forcefully exclaims, I am clean. But then he adds, if Jesus existed, I would not be clean. If there is no judge, if Christ does not return, all of us are clean enough because we're clean by way of our own standards that we're cleaner, that we're more just than this or that person. But if Christ returns, Just like Hazel, we are not clean, 
we are not just. So then the question to ask is, how is this good news? How is this a good ending? How is this actually better than death? Well, James gives us the answer. He tells us, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. To say that Christ will return is to say that Christ has come once before. James here is referring to the first coming, the first advent of Christ, the coming that showed without a doubt that God is compassionate and merciful. And perhaps this is the new scandal in our contemporary culture. We're not appalled because God is a judge. We're appalled because God forgives and that he can forgive absolutely everything. But how? How can he do this? And how? How is he compassionate? How is he merciful? Well, as we've talked about many times before, as is littered throughout the pages of the New Testament, Christ's first coming is wherein he lived the perfect life of love before God and neighbor, the one life that was wholly clean and wholly just, the one life that we ourselves should have lived. Even more, Christ suffered on the cross that he took the punishment that we deserve for every single injustice we committed. And if we receive by faith and acknowledge, yes, Christ did bear my sin, and acknowledge by faith that, yes, he gives us his perfect righteousness, then we can be clean and just. In contrast to Hazel Motes, we find ourselves saying, I'm not clean, but if Jesus exists, I am clean. He himself is our cleanness. The, the theologian Karl Barth, um, above his working desk, he had a, he had a painting, and it was, it was a painting of John the Baptist pointing to, to Christ, and, and he kept that picture above his desk because he believed, and, and rightly so, I think, that the primary, the chief task of the theologian is to point to Christ, to point to Christ, to every word you write, to everything you say, point to Christ. And to be sure, that's the case for every Christian. And in some way, shape, or form, let us point to Christ. Let us point to Christ. However, it's not just before our fellow human beings that our chief action is to point to Christ. Standing before Christ at this return that James tells us about, as all of us will someday do, What will be your first impulse? Will you make excuses for all the times you failed to live out your calling? Will you offer reasons for all the things you should have done but didn't? Or will you stand there with boldness, with confidence, even with joy, and simply point to Christ? For before Christ, we must also point to Christ. Christ is our only defense. He's our only righteousness. Christ is the judge who was judged, the judge who suffered 
our judgment. And so when we look to Christ's return, we should not have fear, but we should have a deep and full hope because we simply need to point to Christ. And from Christ's mouth, we will hear the vindication of all that we have rested in our whole lives. The return of Christ as the judged judge is the full realization that we have been fully received by God in Christ, that we have nothing at all to fear before God, that we truly have no guilt before him. And why is this an ending? Why does this complete our story? Why does this make us a veritable oak? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, is helpful there, and this is one of our foundational documents as, as Presbyterians. And the very first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is that the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this enjoyment is, is crucial, and this enjoyment is part and parcel with our glorifying of God. So let's think about this. What does that mean? It means that by enjoying God, we become what God intends us to be. Because our end, our maturation, our full fruition, is enjoying God fully. So somehow enjoying God is both the way that we become what we're supposed to be, and it's the very fruition of which we are aiming. And to the extent that we fail to enjoy God, we fail to become what God intends us to be. Enjoying God is receiving God. In the same way that an acorn must receive water and soil and sun, so we must receive God in joy. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas gives us a helpful picture here. He, he compares God to a rushing river, saying that God in Christ has given us all of himself. Um, God always acts with all of himself, and so God always gives all of himself. But he compares us to, to buckets, and God has given himself freely, and we have a bucket of a certain size, and we can only receive according to how big our bucket is. So the giving is, is infinite on the part of God, but the receiving is, is limited on our part. So in a sense, the whole purpose of the Christian life is how to make your bucket bigger. How can you receive more of God? So think about it. Why are buckets so small? Well, it's because we're, we're fearful because we doubt God. We doubt that we have truly been accepted by God in Christ. And so we think of God's disapproval. We think that God is not pleased with us. We don't really believe that all we have to do is simply point to Christ. We keep pointing the finger back to ourselves. And so we don't receive God. We don't enjoy God. We feel too guilty to simply put the bucket in and receive God. We don't believe that in Christ we are objects of his love and delight. And so we still seek to earn his love. We still seek to prove our merits. Like Hazel Motes, we seek to live without Jesus. And so rather than freely receiving from the rushing river, 
We seek to dig wells along the muddy banks, believing ourselves only deserving of the dirty drops of water that we've managed to dig out ourselves. And this is so often how we live the Christian life. We dredge the muddy drops and ignore the beautiful, clean river that is rushing beside us. And so we have to ask, what is it that ultimately leads us to sin? What leads us away from God? We as humans are these creational anomalies. We're, we, unlike the tree, we can actually reject the very thing that we need to become what God intends. We are like trees that choose to wither in a warm and well-watered grove, closing our leaves to the sunlight and our roots to soil and water. At bottom, our sin stems from not enjoying and receiving God as he has freely given himself to us in Jesus Christ. So then, what is a key way that God leads us away from sin? By learning to receive him. By learning to receive his love and delight. So take your bucket and plunge it in the river and drink to your fill. This is your privilege. This is your responsibility as a beloved child of God in Christ. If, if, if you're a parent in the room, you know, think about your own child. When your child thinks of you, how does it make you feel when the first thing that they think of is a disapproving stare or, or guilt? And, and I struggle with this. Well, think about God. What first comes to your mind when you think about God? Is it his love? Is it his grace? Is it his delight? Or is it this disapproving stare? Well, just as we hope that's not the case for our children, so too does God hope that for those who have been united to him in Christ. And so growth in the Christian life is simply learning to receive what we have already been given. And if if there's one point to take away from the sermon, this is it. Growth in the Christian life is simply learning to receive what God has already given to us in Christ. For on Christ's return, we will be cleansed from sin and we will hear from the divine Son himself. You are a beloved child of God. You have been forgiven all and God has received you with delight. Uh, to use a, a bit of a, a goofy example, um, in the recent Star Wars movies, um, there's a part where they're debating, the characters are talking about if this all really happened, you know, Luke Skywalker, the Force, Jedis, and then, you know, Han Solo walks in and he says, it's all true, all of it. And as a nerd who grew up watching those movies, who grew up playing with those action figures, who grew up reading piles of companion novels, I can't see Han Solo say that and not getting tingles down every centimeter of my spine. Well, that's a very, 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 very faint, far-off echo, but an echo nonetheless of what we will hear on the last day. 
we have these doubts. Are we really accepted in Christ? Does God really love us? Are we really not guilty? Are we really objects of his love and delight? And Christ will say, it's true. All of it. All that we have been given already will be confirmed. All will be made real. And it will cast out all of our fears and doubts. And at that point, our buckets will be massive. We will receive and enjoy God as much as is humanly possible. We will become what God intends. And we will be transformed into oaks from our present state as acorns. Because we know to be fully human, to become what God intends, is to fully enjoy God as he has freely given himself to us in Christ. But again, even now, we are called to receive God. We are called to enjoy God. We're called to make our buckets bigger. And we should expect that because if that ending is going to make sense of all that has come before, it has to have a deep connection with what's going on right now. And that brings us to our third and final point, speaking hope. Throughout this passage, James calls us to peace, to patience, to expectancy, And as he's done throughout the letter, he draws a special attention to the words that we speak. He warns us against grumbling. He he gives us the examples of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He gives us the example of, of Job. And if you look at the book of Job, it is one extended dialogue. And even through his laments, God tells us that Job spoke rightly of him. As he spoke to his friends, as he spoke to his miserable comforters. comforters. And then James does an interesting thing. He finishes the passage with an exorbitant superlative call to truthful speech. He says the following. Look with me at James 5.12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Recall that we've spoken about growth in the Christian life as receiving what we've been given, as growing our bucket, as realizing, recognizing, and receiving God's love for us in Christ. But what does all of this have to do with the words that we speak? What is James up to here? Well, remember that earlier in the passage, James tells us, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. And we have to realize that words are a a key, perhaps the primary way by which we establish our hearts. In an earlier sermon, and and we've talked about words a lot, but but in one particular sermon, we we went back to Genesis 3, which is also in the background of a lot that James is, is saying. And think about it. Uh, Humanity fell through the use of words. Humanity fell through a conversation with Satan. We fell because we believed a lie introduced by words. Satan tempted us to think the following, that, that that which we most needed, that forbidden fruit, God was withholding from us. Satan convinced us that God is a miser, that he's, he's a penny pincher, that he's a scrooge, that that which we most need, he's holding, us, holding back from us. We can't have that fruit, and it drives us crazy. So Adam and Eve were led to believe that God was withholding what was best. Yet 
God had given Adam and Eve his very self. He placed them in paradise and a beautiful environment, and he had lavished love and fellowship upon them. But they still believed that he was withholding. They still doubted his love and his goodness. And we find ourselves in a parallel situation. God has given us all of himself in Christ, but we're still tempted to doubt. We think God can't be that good. God cannot be that loving. And so what James calls us to do here is to redeem the very things that introduced the lie into our heads, to redeem words. That's why he calls us to dispense with oaths and swearing, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Because think about it. What do oaths and swearing presuppose? Well, they assume the likelihood of of lying. And so we need some kind of external constraint to hold us to our word. And to be sure, this serves an important function in society as we go about our day-to-day and lives and business in society. We need legal binding so that people are kept to their word. But James isn't talking here to society writ large. James is talking to the church. And he tells us that the church is to be a community without oaths, without, without swearing. That the church is meant to be a community of truth. So how does this connect with Christ's second coming? How does this finish all that James is telling us in this passage? Remember, the problem of Genesis 3 is our temptation to believe the lie, to doubt God's goodness and love for us, to believe that God is withholding, that he's withholding the best things from us. Yet, when we look at Christ's comings, We should know beyond a doubt that God loves us, that God has gone to the greatest of lengths himself to bring us back to him in delight over us. Yet we still doubt, and so we still lie. We're not content with what God has given us, and we believe there's something better out there for us that God is withholding. And so we have to use our words to get it by our own efforts and to get it on our own terms. We're not content with our status as beloved children of God and Christ. And so we lie about who we are, our accomplishments, our talents, our backgrounds, our resources, our resumes. When we meet someone new, we feel the urge to impress, to to present ourselves as someone different than who we really are. And we do this because we fail to see that there is no greater human glory than what God has already lavished upon us. We push others out of our lives, and we say that we're fine, when in reality we are suffering, when in reality we are hurting. And so we use words to keep from receiving the love of others, and so we train ourselves not to receive the love of God. Yet to establish our hearts with our speech, to speak truly, is to speak in a way that is content and confident in the love of God. Content and confident in what he has given to us in Jesus Christ. To recognize our need for the love of Christ 
is a recognition that we are not clean, that we do not have it all together, that all of us, in a million different ways, are a mess. And so we don't need to impress others. God already delights over us with all of himself. And so we don't need to hide from others. Our basic disposition to God should be that of receiving his love. And so let us practice that same disposition in our conversations with our neighbors. To be hopeful is to be honest about who we are and what God has done for us. It is to speak truly to God, to our neighbor, to ourselves. Think about it. To not need oaths or swearing is to speak hope. It's to point to Christ, and it's to make our buckets bigger with each and every word that we say. This is how we hope. Right now, let's be honest. All of us, every single one of us, are acorns. Let's be honest about that. There's no shame in that. But someday, by receiving the sun, by receiving the water, by receiving the soil of God's love, we will become oak trees. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would turn this gratitude into assurance to know that it's all true, all of it, and help us to learn to receive what you have already given to us, to recognize, to receive, to enjoy the love and delight that you have lavished upon us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.